0: Welcome to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas. On this edition of Women Who Lead, we'll talk to one of General Motors' top female executives. You'll also meet a photographer who has been recognized as one of the best photojournalists in the world. And we'll check in with the author of an entertaining new book on aging gracefully. An interesting and informative show coming up next. Welcome to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas. To kick off this edition of the show, we welcome Michelle Gardner. She is the Vice President of Global Hardware Systems and Integration at General Motors. And Michelle is one of our 2023 Women Who Lead honorees. Michelle, congratulations and thank you for joining us today.
1: Well, thanks, Ann. It's an absolute honor to be here with you
0: today. So, Michelle, just talk to us a little bit about this interesting career. How did you get into this business?
1: Yeah, so that's a good one. So I actually got into this business, actually, because of my mom and dad. So I'll tell you a little about that. They really taught me um, how fun it was to learn, and they taught me that struggling was okay because struggling led to more success. And they really gave me the courage to explore in the math and sciences um, and challenged myself to grow. And a lot of uh, young girls don't get that, um, right. you know, that type of support. In little things, like I grew up playing with Lincoln logs. <laughs> and I was the one girl that enrolled in the shop class in high school. And this really helped me, you know, to really see things in three dimensions. And that's one thing that girls don't get exposed to much, to see in three dimensions. But the reality is, it's something that can be learned. And they can learn it really easily. And if they're given that opportunity, They can get themselves back into that STEM field. But a little more about my mom and dad and why they helped me so much. So um, when I was growing up, my dad put himself through school, Mm -hmm. through college, you know, while he was working third shift at the plants. And I still remember my brother and I in the backseat of the car, you know, driving in the early morning hours to pick him up because we only had one car at the time, you know. And then they... um, In 1986, they took a leap and they started their own company. So they started their own tool and die company. And I remember going there and watching as they built these robots, um, and they were putting these robots together to create these assemblies for the automotive industry. And watching them bring those robots to life was like a dance to me when I would watch those robots work. So it, it was fun, and it really gave me the inspiration that I could do it myself. So they really encouraged me um, to go in, and I, and I think that's really important why I'm able to do what I am today. One last thing about my mom is she'd always tell me when I'd get in a stress situation, she'd go, Michelle, you can do this. You'll figure it out. You'll get it, you th- you'll get it done. and It'll be great. And I still, oh. today, when I'm in stressful situations, <laughs> I hear my mom telling me that, and I take a deep sigh, and I'm like, yep, you're right. I can do this.
0: Oh, I love that. So that's
1: that. really why I got into it.
0: What a great story. You know, my mom is like that, too. My mom has always <laughs> said to me, you've got this. Oh, no yeah. problem. This is no big <laughs> deal. And I think that really matters to people when you've it got does. a support system like that. Oh, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. And Michelle, I know you have from listening to you talk and having your colleagues talk to me about you, that you have a huge heart for women in STEM and that you are really into this and you very, very strongly (laughs) believe in helping girls get into this side of the business. Talk a little bit more about this.
1: Yeah, I could absolutely talk forever about this one. Because one of actually one of the things, one of the roles I play right now at General Motors that's, that's really important to me is as the uh, executive champion of our Women's Employee Resource Group. So we serve over 12,000 female employees in the US, 16,000 globally. Our mission is to attract, retain, and develop female talent at GM. And why I have a passion for this, it, I can really sum it up in one word, and it's the word innovation. So we still got a lot of problems in this world um, that we have to solve, and a lot of them are going to take the skills of engineers and scientists. And when women aren't not, aren't well represented in these fields, uh, we really miss out on the novel solutions that this diverse participation can bring, and we simply can't afford to, to ignore the perspectives of half our population. You know, I was fortunate to have my parents, you know that encouraged me to go in this field, but unfortunately, a lot of girls don't get the support. Right. You know, and and uh, the STEM ha- basically has a stigma of being hard and boring. And and um, you know, if you if you think of somebody that's in the STEM field, people think of you know men. They don't think of women because there's there's not a lot of role models. And when I was in college, we had about eleven percent women in my graduating class. Wow not to age myself, 35 years later, the number's only 20%. And if we keep going at that rate, it's going to take us 100 years to reach parity. So it's really important that we start, you know, with these girls at a young age um, and really, you know, encourage them to go in this
0: field because we really need them. How do you do that, Michelle Gardner? How do you get them (laughs) interested in this? So
1: the first is, You know, really encourage them, and this has to be done at all levels. And when I talked about our mission of attracting, retaining, and developing women, um, it starts at a very young age, right? It's not just about going out and making sure that we're recruiting uh, people from the colleges, because by then, most of the females have dropped out. It's really in that, you know, formative years in middle school and high school uh, that you really got to convince them that they can do this. And I think one of the most important things is to make sure that we teach young girls that it's a growth mentality that they have to have. You know, a lot of people think you just have to be good in math and science, and all of a sudden, you know, you've got this gift, then you can go do it. But these young girls, they can learn it. You know, I talked about seeing in three dimensions. There was a study that, that showed um, one university started a course and had the, you know, the freshman women take this course, and it was, I don't know, 20 hours or something. Well, in the end, they, were, they proved that could, they could just do it, you know, like in a day. Mm-hmm. It really didn't take long to learn the skills, um, but really encouraged them to do it. And the other thing is, you know, role models. And that's why I think, you know, like this program that you guys have at WJR is so important for young women to see or young females to see women in these types of roles and know that they can do it and have the confidence to do it.
0: Yes, I think so you're absolutely so right. Yeah, I agree with you. So what kind of advice do you have for young women who do like math and science and are interested in your business and, and getting into this world? What advice do you have for them as they start out their careers, Michelle?
1: Yeah, so um, the first thing is, like you said, ha- having that growth mindset Um, always being willing to learn, always asking questions, you know, always looking for ways that they can improve themselves, not being afraid to fail. Because again, Mm -hmm. failure is what really leads us to success. So, you know, looking for those role models that they can see, seeking out people to help mentor them um, and not letting this bias that we have in society where, um, you know, they don't think they can make it, making sure that they can get beyond that you know, one of the things also that um, we try to talk a lot about is women uh, suffer a lot from what, um, what's called the imposter syndrome, right, where we think that maybe we're not smart enough and somebody's going to figure that out. And, you know, we really have to be aware of those types of things. And one of the things that I find with the work we do is just, just sharing our stories Just sharing that I have imposter syndrome Mm -hmm, and I have to work on it every day, that helps Um, younger people understand. It's not just them. We all suffer through that. But I think sharing our stories is probably the most important thing So, so they can see a path to success
0: on their own. Michelle Gardner, Vice President of Global Hardware Systems and Integration at General Motors. Thank you so much for this great advice for all of your time today. And congratulations on being one of our 2023 Women Who Lead Honorees.
1: Thanks so much, Ann. I'm so honored for this. I appreciate your time.
0: You are listening to Women Who Lead. We'll be back right after these messages. (music) Linda Solomon is a nationally recognized, award-winning photojournalist and member of the exclusive and prestigious Michigan Journalism Hall of Fame. She has divided her career between capturing the most famous personalities of our time, and teaching others to express themselves through photography. Linda is one of our 2023 Women Who Lead honorees. Welcome to the show, Linda, and congratulations.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Anne. I am very honored, and I cannot thank you enough to be included with this wonderful group of women.
0: Linda, how did you get involved in photography?
2: Well, I started as a child. Uh, It was my favorite gift from my family, and it was a gift that I received when I was six years old. It was a Kodak brownie, and I never went anywhere without my camera. So I was documenting all the family activities, birthdays, celebrations. I'm not in a lot of the photographs because I was the one taking the photographs. (laughs) So it was really a special gift. I always tell parents of young children. This is a gift that children never grow tired of. They continue to grow with their interest in photography. So it's just a wonderful way to give children a chance to express feelings.
0: So once you graduated from high school, what was next for you?
2: Next for me, I was... um, so excited to attend the University of Arizona. My mother attended the University of Arizona and Arizona is such a photogenic and yes. beautiful state. Yes. So I was continuing with my love of photography when I was at in tucson at the university of arizona and then i did transfer back home to the university of michigan and continued with my interest but i majored in education i wanted to be a teacher like my mom and my mom taught in the detroit schools for thirty years and i wanted to follow in those beautiful footsteps and continue as a teacher. But at that time, it was very hard to obtain a teaching position. So I just continued with my interest in photography. And I did take a few classes, but um, I'm self-taught primarily, and uh, I only use natural light. I've never changed my style. And I continue to just use natural light when I do portraiture and, of course, in my work as a journalist. But um, when I teach, it's very easy for me to teach because I I make it simple, and I work with children all over the country expressing their interest and their love uh, in photography. And it's been a wonderful way for me to bring back my love of teaching because now I, I work with children. I've been working with children in my nonprofit, Pictures of Hope, since 2005 and I work with children experiencing homelessness mm. and we give the children cameras and a photo assignment and they capture their hopes and dreams for a better life.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. So this is thank you your nationally recognized Pictures of Hope program, right Linda?
2: Yes, yes, thank you.
0: That's incredible and how have the children reacted to this? It sounds like so much fun.
2: It is fun, and it's a way for them to open up. They share things they've never shared before. Uh, These children aren't dreaming for iPads. They're dreaming, of course, for a home. They're dreaming for their mothers to be happy. Often I see the dream for a bed. Often in shelters there aren't enough beds, and children sometimes are sleeping on air mattresses or blankets on the floor. So their dream is for a bed. And we've had great success in creating awareness for this horrific problem in our country. Over 2.5 million children are homeless in America. And the numbers have continued to escalate, of course, due to the pandemic and so what we do is create awareness for the children. It's a one-on-one connection where the kids feel someone cares about their future. I mean, when you ask a child to reveal her dreams or his dreams, they know someone cares.
0: Does Pictures of Hope result in a book of the pictures the kids have taken that people can see?
2: Well, well what we do, uh, we do exhibitions and we do note cards, where all 100% of the proceeds benefit the kids. So people can go to the website. Picture It's www.picturesofhope.org. And we just concluded an exhibition at the Albuquerque Museum. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and so that's how we we create awareness and funding for the kids through the note cards. We haven't down a book yet i should i've brought the program to 52 cities so and i see that coming yeah well you know most cities i mean albuquerque has we've brought pictures of hope to children in albuquerque for 10 consecutive years so so with that said um yes i'd love to do a book i i um i have it in you know in my wish list of things I need to do. So thank you, Anne, for asking.
0: Mm, such a wonderful thing that you're doing. Now talk thank a little you. bit about your favorite people that you have photographed over the years.
2: Thank you for asking that. I Sadly, uh, this year I've lost three oh. of my most favorite people that I had the honor to photograph and to get to know. Uh, Tony Bennett. Mm. Became a, a dear friend. Uh, I met him early on in the 80s when I did a story on him for my column in the Detroit News back in 84. But we became friendly when I did a photo essay at his home because it was based on his work as an artist. He's an incredible painter, as we all know, his work is in the Smithsonian. But painting to Tony was as important as his singing. So I did a photo essay for Good Morning America based just on his painting. And we became very good friends after the story aired. And and I would see him. He would come to Detroit and we'd have dinner. And then in the mornings of his concert, he would ask me to recommend a place where he could paint. And I would drop him off at someone's home. I didn't give them much notice. Anne, oh. I would in the morning. I would call someone who I knew had a beautiful garden, and I said, uh, "May I bring Tony Bennett to your house today?" And they almost flipped out, but they didn't have time to call the neighborhood and all their friends. So I would drop him off. He was in—I think he was in the car when I called—and then I would pick him up. At the end of the day, I didn't hover over him, uh, and I. I let him just do what he loved here in Michigan. So, he painted every time he came back to Michigan to perform, he would paint during the day. And uh it was just so special to be able to you know, get to know him mm, and yes. and meet his family, I know his wife and his daughters. Uh and it he was just a dear, dear friend, and he will always be with us. His music and his paintings will, will forever inspire us. So I lost him. He was just, just so special to my family. Yes. Uh, I lost Bert Bacharach this year. I, I was always a huge Bert Bacharach fan, but through my work, I did get to know him and that was also an honor for me to be able to photograph him. In fact, I posted some photos this morning of a special memory where he asked me to photograph him with Elvis Costello just backstage as they were listening to new music they had composed, and it was such a a wonderful Experience for me to be able to see their relationship. You know, they were so close uh, as collaborators and friends, but to be able to capture that was very special.
0: Mm. And you said there was a third one too, Linda.
2: Well, Barbara Walters. uh, She was always my hero. In I interviewed Barbara Walters for the Detroit News. Many decades ago, and I'll tell you, it was challenging, and you know this. As a, as, a, <laughs> as a famous producer, you know how hard it is to get Barbara Walters to grant an interview, yes. and I duplicated her style. I, I didn't give up. I would send her handwritten letters every single month, and she declined until one day she said yes. Mm. And at that time, when I interviewed her, she was only granting cover stories as the first woman to anchor a network newscast. That, those were the years when I interviewed her, and she was so famous of, as, as, of course, she remained. But she didn't grant local Interviews, but she agreed to do the interview for the Detroit News, and it was a, an interview where she really opened up mm. and shared things. The things I asked her, "What makes you a little nervous?" and she said, and this surprised me. She said, "The only time I get a little." Well, I guess feelings, I I become a little nervous or I have feelings of anxiety is when I'm a guest on the Johnny Carson show. (laughs) And I said, why? She says, well, because I'm more of a performer and I'm not a performer. Mm. She said, it's the only time I smoke and I don't (laughs) smoke. So, but it was, it was really interesting what she shared and she sent me a letter after the interview was published. And Anne, I will tell you, there were words in that letter that to this day inspire me. Because at the end of the letter, she said, I wish you every success, and I hope our paths continue to cross. Now, this was sent to me in 1987, and I was determined to make that come true, and it did. Mm -hmm. So through the years, I did see her, uh, and I continue to write to her. I have many letters from her. She would always respond, which I think says a lot about Barbara Walters. Someone that busy, someone who receives so many letters always responded with a handwritten letter. And they're treasures to me. They're in my jewelry box. Hmm, I can uh, imagine. But with, I think, again, she was a very considerate person. She knew how much I admired her, certainly. And those words meant so much to me. I think that's the power of words. I mean, sometimes you can say something to someone or write something, and those words resonate with you for the rest of your life. And and her words have resonated in mine.
0: Oh, that's so, so true. You know, Linda, I have always admired your work. You are just an amazing photographer. But I do have a confession to make. I absolutely hate to have my picture taken. So oh. I want to know, <laughs> what are some tips for amateur okay. photographers out there? How can they make scenery look great or people Mm -hmm. look good?
2: Well, I think the secret to it and getting people to feel comfortable is using natural light. I think just having someone, you know, outdoors, if I said, Ann, let's stand in your garden or, or let me photograph you, you know, in your favorite room, in your favorite chair, you know, where you're comfortable. And don't take a lot of time. I mean, even when I photographed Aretha, you know, when I was putting the book together, I look back and I think, why didn't I take more than four or five photographs? But I think that was the key. I wasn't intrusive. I think if you just take a few photographs, it makes someone more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think, again, shooting outside or, or just with window light and just Keep it fun. You know, just make it easy. I think to get the better photographs of landscapes, I always tell people shoot early in the morning or shoot late in the day. Make sure when you photograph children, get right down on eye level. Don't stand when you're photographing little children children. Always make sure you're right down on eye level with them. And this way, the photographs are more engaging, you're in their world, and it's just a more effective way to photograph children. But the time of day is critical. Also, when you're using any kind of artificial light in the room, never photograph anyone under recessed lighting. <laughs> That's the most Unflattering light. Um, so, you know, look more closely before you take a photograph. Really, really make sure that you're seeing exactly what you want. I think that's the difference between looking and seeing. Take time to really see what you want to capture in someone or what you want to capture, you know, in a landscape, a seascape, in your garden. I mean, photographing flowers, you also, you know, you can use a macro lens, and where you can get the close-ups of a flower bud, which, you know, is, is just beautiful, the capture. And I think it's very relaxing. I, you know, I've, I not only teach children, but I do teach adults from time to time. And, and photography is a way to be very mindful. You're truly in the moment. You're not thinking about what happened yesterday or what could happen tomorrow. Sure. You're really concentrating on the beauty in your life, photographing your children, your parents, any... Any beautiful scene that that you love in your life, just take the time to to spend to capture it and say, "This really looks great." I think you know the difference now that we have between digital and film. I think with film, when we were shooting film, we were more thoughtful. It was sure, expensive, right, right. you know. Now with digital, we shoot hundreds of photographs and delete so many of them, and then realize, "Wow." Um, Maybe I shouldn't have deleted that, but it's gone. So, you know, I think just taking more time to really to really see life, not just look, but to really see life.
0: Mm, such great advice. Linda Solomon, award-winning photojournalist, thank you so much for your time today. And congratulations on being one of our 2023 Women Who Lead honorees.
2: Thank you, Ann.
0: You are listening to Women Who Lead. Coming up next, we'll talk to the author of an entertaining new book on aging. We'll be back right after this. And as Women Who Lead continues, we now say hello to Jennifer DeVita. She's an influencer in positive aging, a TV personality, a community organizer, and author of a new book on aging called Not Your Shoe Size. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ann. So talk to us a little bit about this book, Not Your Shoe Size. What's it about?
3: It is a women's fiction story about two women who are aging together from the age of 10 to 100. And each chapter is a decade of their life. And it just goes through the life experience that these two women face, you know, that every woman faces. And what's interesting is I created it so that the two main characters, its uh, they, they tell their story through a series of witty vignettes that go back and forth between the two characters points of view and the main characters julia and colette have their, they have this lifelong loyal friendship to each other but they have very opposing views on how to age well in an age of society so for example julia is all about embracing her gray hair and wrinkles and geriatric sneakers and colette is the exact opposite where she's doing everything she can to chase the elusive fountain of youth and trying everything under the sun to stay youthful and despite their opposing viewpoints they're very very loyal to each other
0: what made you decide to write a book like this jennifer devita
3: so i have been working in the field of gerontology for the past 15 years and Before that, I actually got my degree in broadcasting because I wanted to be able to tell stories and use the media to be able to tell stories uh, about whatever. And right out of college, I elected to be a stay at home mom. And 11 years later, I tried to get my foot back in the door at a TV station to be an on air reporter. And I was told I was too seasoned (laughs) to be on TV. And I was 31 years old. Uh. And I thought, How is that possible to be 31 and be already that your career is like washed up before you've even had a chance to start? So I did the next natural thing, which was to go into the field of gerontology, which is the study of being two seasons. (laughs) And so I've worked in that field for 15 years, and I've seen the vast spectrum of aging, how people age. I worked with people when I first started in this field. I worked with people who were as young as 55 years old who had early onset Alzheimer's and lots of diseases and multiple illnesses. And then on the flip side, I've worked with people who are in their 70s, starting their first business. I had the opportunity to work with Ernestine Shepard, who is the world's oldest bodybuilder, and she's in her 80s. And so I've seen this incredible spectrum of aging. And what I've really come to embrace is that your age is truly just a number on a chronological scale. It does not define your stage in life, It does not define your well-being, what you can accomplish, what you can do. And so... I really wanted to be able to capture, like, this essence of people that life is still so adventurous, and you still have so much to offer, even when you get into your 80s, 90s, and even 100 years old. And again, working in the field of gerontology, I've read all kinds of nonfiction books about the aging process, but I had yet to see one that was a fiction book that told the fun and lighthearted side of getting older and just being witty and charming, and that's where I saw the opportunity to brighten out your shoe guys.
0: How did you come up with the name?
3: So my lifelong girlfriend, Julie, and I, we, uh, we grew up together um, from the age of like three uh, right through adulthood. And we would always say to each other, act your age, not your shoe size. And that was kind of our signature sign-off for each other. And I captured that in the book. And so the two characters use that signature sign-off with each other. So the, the title of the book is Not Your Shoe Size, but the subtitle is a novel about acting your age and then in parentheses or not, because, again, some people, you know, your age, some people don't. And it, there's no definition on how you're supposed to act at a certain age.
0: You know, this is a perfect book for the times that we're living in, because there's a lot of conversation about our politicians perhaps being too old to do a particular job. What are your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, so it goes both ways because uh, you can be too old, you know, seemingly too old to do something, right? Like right now, like you said, in this political arena, uh, the person's age is a big piece of are they fit to, you know, serve in the, you know, as president of our country. On the flip side, if somebody is really young and running, let's say for a mayor position, they might be thought of as too inexperienced to run. And so it really goes both ways.
0: The other thing I think that's really important is what you're saying is not the actual numerical age. It's how people are feeling and acting and what they're doing. Absolutely. Yeah, it has to
3: do with the, the way that we live our lives, the choices that we make. Are we still staying uh, you know, on top of our health as far as exercising, eating well, getting good sleep, uh, in, in keeping the brain engaged, all of those pillars that really define wellness? In aging, and it's not the number because again, working with people that are as young as 55 years old who had a lot of illnesses that only showed me that that's you know what one 55-year-old might look like, just the same as working with somebody in her 70s who was starting her first business,
0: and it was like this is what one 70-year-old looks like. That's pretty amazing. So, as an influencer in positive aging, talk a little bit more about how people can age well age positively
3: it's interesting because there are new studies that show that your perception on aging can absolutely influence how much longer you live so if you have a negative viewpoint of getting older your life can actually be cut shorter. So if you have a positive perception, you can live up to seven years longer. So it really has to do with the, the, the behaviors that we have as far as taking care of our health and eating well and exercising, but it also has to do with our perception of aging too. And I think that's fascinating. So there's a lot of new research that's come out about this, but that if you look to the future with hope and optimism, you will actually live longer and happier
0: and better lives. We know that genetics plays a role, but also this important idea of exercising and eating right and taking good care of yourself, that matters.
3: It does matter. Absolutely. And so often, you know, like we hear this information and we we go, we know this. But do we apply it? And that's the biggest hurdle for people is it's making the behavioral changes that we know we're supposed to get, you know, seven to nine hours of sleep a night. We know that we're supposed to eat our green leafy vegetables and whole grains and eat, a uh, you know, a low fat diet. But do we do it? Same thing with the exercise. We know that we're supposed to exercise like five times a week, 30 minutes. Do we do it? And so a lot of it has to do with just the behavioral modification. And as a gerontologist, one of the things that I talk to people about is don't try to do everything all at once because it – will overwhelm you and then you just give up on everything. So it's really about just kind of making one change. Where's the one area of your life that you might need the most work on? Maybe you get the the right amount of sleep. Maybe you take your vitamins and supplements the way that you're supposed to, but maybe you're not getting the exercise. So that's the thing that you need to work on. Just focus on that one thing and start making daily changes a little at a time where it becomes then a habit, because the habit then becomes part of your natural routine. And then it's not a big deal when you have to think about, you know, going to the gym or going for a walk or just sitting in your chair and doing stretches. But it's about making sure that you do the behavioral modification.
0: We're talking to Jennifer DeVita. She is the author of a new fiction book on aging. It's called Not Your Shoe Size. Jennifer, as an expert in aging, what are your thoughts with regard to these senior living communities that are popping up all over our area, all over the country, really?
3: It's fascinating because So oftentimes people say, I wish I would have made this move sooner. And I think that that's what people are starting to realize is that the continuum of care, right? Like when people think of like moving into a senior living community, the old perception was that you were going into like assisted living or skilled nursing. But long before you ever even get down that path. People are moving into independent living, and what it does is it just offers peace of mind where it's like, you know, you it's still your own home. It doesn't mean that you're declining in your health or well-being or anything. You don't have to do the maintenance of your home. If you're a snowbird, you can travel. You can go somewhere else. Somebody else is kind of managing the properties, but the the nice safety measure in this is that if you need to – move down that spectrum of care and you start needing maybe some assistance with some of your day-to-day things, then you are in that same community where you can get assisted living. Maybe you need some uh, care for your spouse. You may not need it, but you're Your spouse gets the care that he or she needs.
0: The other thing that I noticed, my parents are 89 and 87, is how much they love being with family. And I think even though they do live in a retirement community, it's still so important for family to be around them as much as possible.
3: It is. And I captured that in the essence of my book, Not Your Shoe Size, because as the women become older, their family starts to distance themselves because they just get busy. They're raising their own kids. Eventually, the two characters become great grandmothers. And then you've got even more family dynamics in place. And there's this one section of the novel where the the one woman is just lonely. She just wants her family to spend time with her. And her great grandson comes over and visits and, and the granddaughter who is an adult, you know, it's like, we got to go, we got to go. And and she's sitting there holding her great-grandson saying, you know, we're the ones who understand the idea of living a slower paced life. And she talks about how important it is to just have her family nearby. And that is a, such an important component for the aging process because our social circles do shrink. When we retire, we lose the networking and the the lunches and the water cooler conversations. And as we get older, than our friends, Start to pass away. So it's so important that families stay connected to older adults. And even though life gets busy, it's important to make sure that you're still reaching out to that person or setting up a, a phone call on a regular weekly cadence or whatever it might be, but just making sure that that older adult is not kind of forgotten because life gets busy.
0: Our guest, Jennifer DeVita, she's written a great new book on aging. It's called Not Your Shoe Size. Jennifer, where can we get the book?
3: The book is available on all major online sellers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, But I'm a big supporter of local books, too, of local bookstores. And so you can go to a local bookstore, and if it's not in stock, like there on the shelf, they can order it for you. So you can get it really anywhere that uh, books are sold.
0: Jennifer DeVita, thank you so much for your time today. It was great talking to you and getting to know you. Thank you, Anne. And you've been listening to Women Who Lead. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.